Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together, Father, and the unity that you've provided, each of us as individuals and as a congregation. Father, thank you for sending us your Son to die in our stead, to cancel out that debt against us. For this we are most grateful and thankful, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, Part 4. Um, we've had a bit of a launching pad from our last series. Up here on the board, Luke 10, 41 to 42 reads, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, and that's been our launching pad. It's sort of slingshotted us into this current series, and we're already on part four. Only one thing is necessary. And I think that's something we need to repeat to ourselves over and over, uh, especially when we get, the world gets the best of us or we get the best of ourselves really that's what it comes down to um, we should just repeat this there's only one thing that's necessary um, and as the blog spoke that's a victor's perspective that was the blog this week that's a victor's perspective just knowing that we're already victorious in Christ Jesus um, and as the song the pre-class song what a beautiful privilege it is so he said, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her, up here on the board, just for clarity's sake. But only one thing is necessary. Jesus was speaking of himself. That was Mary's preoccupation, whereas Martha was preoccupied with what we would call the details of life, and she was even complaining to the Lord about such things and why Mary wasn't partaking uh, in similar, I don't want to call it um, folly, because that's what it is. When we prioritize the details of life over Jesus Christ, it's the very definition of folly. And I think that's what the Spirit's trying to give us in this series. Let's just get our mind straight on things. But only one thing is necessary. Jesus was speaking of himself, worshiping him, partaking in the bread of life. He, the Word, is our sustenance. While the world focuses on the physical, we believers are to focus on spiritual, heavenly food and shelter. We've been doing a lot of thinking then about this key word, devotion. If there's only one thing necessary, uh, who is it, what is it, and how shall we devote ourselves to it? But there's a slippery slope in view up here in the board <clears throat> as a person's focus goes so goes their devotion and typically as a person's devotion goes so goes their idolatry so you have this sort of string of pearls of truth a person's focus there goes their devotion and as the devotion goes so goes their idolatry it all begins with distraction i mean that's how we're let's say, seduced away from Christ. All the distractions in the world. I mean, look at Martha. The Messiah was in her house 
and she was seduced away by the details of life. What a perfect picture of so many believers even nowadays. We've been seduced. And in America, there is just myriad seductions every single day just in front of us, in front of us, in front of us. And we get distracted, 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 distracted. It all starts with a fracturing of our relationship with Christ, a loss of our love for him even in a practical sense. It all begins with this sort of splinter. Before the end of today, I'd be willing to bet at least half of you are going to have a major splinter presented in your life. It's going to probably be another human being or some situation at work or at home or with kids or whatever. Something or someone is going to try to distract you. And that's the, the, the entry point, if you would, of our separation, our uh, devotion even, ultimately, our focus for starters. It all begins with distraction then, hyper-focus on the details of life, and then a supplanting of our first love. And a supplanting of our first love. That's a very slippery slope. We noted John's warning on Thursday. Go to 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19. So on Thursday, we noted this passage. We'll look at it again with a little bit more emphasis on um, a couple of things. So John has given us a warning in Holy Scripture. 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So let's grab a little guidance from the Spirit on John's writing style. One of the things I like about John um, is that he's very straightforward. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't sort of ease into his thoughts. He just says, this is the way it is. It's this or that. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. If you're a believer, here's all the evidence. If you're an unbeliever, here's the evidence. If these things don't jive, you have a problem. If you say you're here, but you're over here, you have a problem. If you're over here, you know, this kind of a thing. That's what I like about John. And I think people try to worm their way out of things because it can be distasteful to the to our sensibilities, the way he wrote. Well, too bad, right? So a little, a little uh, wisdom on the way that John wrote. Um, he talked about two spheres a lot. He didn't use that language, but this was, his, this was his angle, if you would, into the doctrines that he referred to. The apostle John saw only two spheres, believers and unbelievers. That was, that's how he wrote. He said, you're either in the boat or you're not. Remember I wrote that boat analogy back in the day? You're either in the boat or you're not. You're part of the church or you're not. There's not this gray area that contemporary Christianity likes to mess around in and focus a lot of its tension on. Um, John wasn't like that at all. He said there's basically only two spheres, believers and unbelievers. He didn't mince words. He wrote upon this basic premise because many, even during his time, and some of you can relate to this now, many were supposing what we'll call gray 
or morphed religion, and that it was sufficient for salvation. And it's not. It's not. So again, he saw two spheres, believers and unbelievers. He wrote upon this basic premise because many were supposing gray morphed religion was sufficient for salvation. It isn't. It's not. So here's a visual for you. These are called Venn diagrams in math. I know I've brought it up in the past, but I sometimes once in a while it's nice to see a visual. The top is John's view, and that should be our view. There's just two spheres, and they are completely mutually exclusive. You can't be kind of a believer. You're either a believer or you're not. You're an unbeliever or you're, or you're not. It's one or the other. And it's that bottom section where there's some sort of overlap, and there are contemporary churches nowadays that function in that little football shape on the bottom and pretend and play all these games because, God forbid, God forbid we offend the sensibilities of man. God forbid you come to church and somebody's offended. I mean, you guys get offended, and you're believers, as far as I know. But, I mean, there are churches that cater to the world and the world's sensibilities, which is a, a, a tragedy. Especially, look at verse 19 again. John said, we know that we are of God, okay, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And that's the top of the board again, the top example. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And then he says in that famous verse, that short little verse, verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. And I don't know about you, but that's still echoing down the corridors of human history. Even, I mean, look, it's being taught for what, the third, fourth time from this pulpit alone? A couple thousand years later? Guard yourselves from idols. So the starkness of this last verse demands that we take pause. Demands it. It just sort of arrives. <laughs> there it is. Children, guard yourselves from idols. It's stark. It's right there. And you know, God the Holy Spirit didn't make any mistakes, so he kind of wanted it to be like that. You know, a lot of, you know, you read a little bit, you know, you read Psalms or some of the, even some of the other books in the New Testament, a lot more fluid. This particular verse, for whatever reason, it's just sort of like an exclamation point. It just stands out. And the Spirit made it so, so that we would, even thousands of years later, take pause. So it demands that we take pause. I think it's especially pertinent for we Americans because... Uh, as we spoke of on Thursday up here on the board, there's a plague in our country. I'll call it the American plague. Americans are plagued with idolatry. Compare that to what we just read. Guard yourselves from idolatry. 1 John 5.21. We are often the world's primary source of it. I know some of you have traveled. I've traveled extensively all over the world. And you might be amazed 
and I said this when I got back from India, even in India, as positive as they are towards Christ, there's this thing, like America's got, you know, got it. Like there's something to be envied about America. And I remember sitting down with Jess at the dinner table with Joey and telling him, you, it's not what you think. Be careful what you wish for because they all want to come over here, you see, because they think there's all kinds of, you know, opportunity. And somehow it's better. And I say to myself, <laughs> just be careful what you look for. You might get a better steak at night or a better pair of sneakers or something like that. But be careful what you ask for, because we are one heck of an idolatrous nation. Matter of fact, I wrote that blog, what was it, uh, in 2016, March 9th, right, uh, titled America's Greatest Export. It's idolatry. I mean, the world is infected by it. It's, it's a tremendous export of ours. And so we're plagued by it, and it's impossible for us to you know, fully extract. We're, we're not of the world, but we're in it. And so we have to deal with it all day long. And if you've got that little square, that rectangle, the widescreen rectangle sitting in your living room, it's where you live, and right smack dab in the middle, everything, you ever notice all the chairs, all the seating is angled right towards the, right? It's almost like, it's like saying, God, I really want to get as much of that sewage as possible. Like it's coming out and everybody's like, you know, if I'm angled away, I'm not going to get it all. It's horrible. It's, it's, a, it's like a, uh, what do you call it, a metaphor for, spiritual, for our spiritual living even. Like we're facing a sewer pipe and we're eager and hungry for more. We angle ourselves, which means it's premeditated. We angle ourselves towards it. That's America. I don't know what the number is, but there's probably, I don't know, millions and millions. I don't think it's in the billions. Maybe the Super Bowl is. But millions of people will watch the games today. And they'll all be like this. And as I said before, and I thought this is a wonderful quote from someone. I don't know who said it, but they said, really, the programs are just um, transports for the commercials. They get you to watch the programs but it's the commercials that get in your souls. Think about Super Bowl Sunday. What's everybody wait for? The commercials. Why? Because they're super duper attractive. And usually they're idolatrous to the core. Anyways. The worst thing we can do as individuals is point to the collective and be done with our critical thinking exercise. Oh, yeah, American. These Americans are such boneheads. But me, I'm good. Really? But that's easier, isn't it? Just to throw stones at America. And that's not what I'm doing, by the way. Because it's the individuals that make up a country. As far as I know, our Constitution's pretty darn solid. That's why we're, the worse we get, the more we're trying to change it. But anyways, I, it's the people. It's the idolaters. It's the ungodly people that flank us in our neighborhoods. So the worst thing we can do as individuals is point to the collective and be done with our critical thinking exercise. God, the Holy Spirit, is never satisfied with deflection. Some of you are master deflectors. Not me, right? Got your little shield up. It's like, deflect it. 
like, yeah, it's really them you want anyways. No. You've got to be aware of your situation, my friends. Most people are so ingrained in idolatry that they hardly even recognize their condition. Most people are so ingrained in idolatry that they hardly even recognize their condition. We all need to take pause here and contemplate what things in our lives have taken precedence over Jesus. No one is immune to falling away from him. No one. As a side note, as I wrote that, I had another thought. Um, again, no one is immune to falling away from him. A little side note, one of the ways you know you're actually maturing in the faith is your ability to admit such things. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to fall away. None of us are immune. But one of the great, let's say the hallmarks of a mature believer is their ability to admit that they're sinning. Admitting it is half the battle. What I've learned from Holy Scripture and from life experience is that the longer a believer lives, the more they realize how wretched their flesh is. And you're actually more ready to admit such things, not deflect, because it stings. Oh, man, someone's going to see me for who I really am. Yeah, God already sees it all and more. And you're dealing with God. Idolatry is a disease, a plague. And arguably, I mean, you could make a pretty darn good argument that it's the most infectious of all diseases known to man. I mean, who's got... Who's got every disease known of all time, even the most infectious one? Nobody. But we all pretty much are idolatrous. So it's probably the greatest disease of all. Even believers are idolatrous. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Why'd you spend so much time in the mirror this morning? Seriously. Because you idolize your hair, if you have some. I'm serious, or your clothing, or whatever it is you're trying to present to the rest of the world. I'm not saying not just trying to look good, but you know what I'm saying. Why just spend that little extra minute there? Are you calling me an idolater? Nope. Maybe the spirit is, though. Don't know. That's between you and him. What I know is that idolatry is a disease, and that's why the Apostle John wrote what he wrote in verse 21 of 1 John 5. To net it out, we might consider the following John-esque type thinking up here on the board. Relative to idolatry, it is an issue for a believer under two circumstances. They are blatantly, they're either blatantly sinning in arrogance, and they're like, I don't give a care. I'm just an idolatrous jerk, and I'm not even going to apologize. Or they are unaware of their idolatry. I mean, how many times have you ever set back, the Spirit puts you back on your heels, and you're like, oh, man, I didn't even know I was an idolater in that area. You're like, yeah, I, kinda, I do do that stuff. Didn't even realize it. Yeah, join the club. Join the club. The language that is in the original language that talks about idolatry, it's a seductive, it's an undercurrent, it's insidious, it's ingrained, it's, it's erosive. Idolatry that really works on us is the idolatry that we were unaware of, at least at face value. We have to look at our lives and say, well, what is it, what is it that I might be doing that as a result, what's motivating me? 
to stay in the mirror one minute longer. What's well, I got to be the prettiest girl in the congregation, so I have to. Or I have to be the, the standing stud muffin in the congregation, or at work, or on the beach. So I'm going to spend six hours a day at the gym with my beach body. Right? I mean, that's, I'm talking about John Gardner. <laughs> Look at him. Sorry, John. Underneath that sweater is ripped. Trying to loosen you up. You guys are getting kind of convicted on me a little bit. He's getting kind of tense. So it's the second bullet that the spirits had our attention sort of sitting on. That we might be unaware of our own idolatry. That's why you don't want to deflect and say, oh, it's America. America's so idolatrous. Look at all the famous people. No, it's you. Because you're the one who pays their salaries by turning on that big, giant, 70-inch rectangle. I mean, who do you think pays football players? Here's some food for thought on this. Again, this is from Thursday. Discovering hidden idolatry. These are just things I'm throwing out there. So don't get mad at me. Don't say I'm picking on you because some of you have all these things or one or whatever. It's between you and the Lord. I'm just saying, this is how you might think about it. If you're stressing over home mortgage or rent, in other words, your, your, your home is costing a little bit too much, but you really like it and your neighbors like it and your friends like it and you like to brag about it, but yet you're stressed out over it, and because of the stress, it's taking you away from your love for Christ and maybe even his mandate on you, which is to love others more than self even. You can't love others because you're too busy being wigged out about something that you shouldn't even have that you keep calling a blessing, but it's actually a curse. And God keeps trying to tell you from the pulpit and maybe even in other ways in your life, that's not from me. I know you want to tell yourselves it's from me, but it is not from me. You know how you go, you're going to know? Because you're stressed out over it. Because you're wigged out over it. I don't give you blessings that put you into bondage. And if I did and you screwed it up, then get rid of it. How about stress over car payments? Got to have that nice car. Do you really, though? Do you really have to have a nice car? I mean, unless you're in, like, sales where, you know, you could lose a sale because you look like a jucket. That's, you know what I'm saying. You, know, you can't pull up in a hoopty, you know, with the ground effects and right? That's type of thing. You might lose a sale. I get it. There's certain business instruments that have to be used. But unless that's your case, unless you have a case for a business instrument, and if it's stressing, it's not, if you can't have, it's not, if you have a nice car, it's cool. But if you're stressed out over it, there's a problem. That's the point. You might have an idolatry issue that you're clinging to. How about hyper-concern about kids' success? Or how about just kids in general? Or self-esteem issues? You pick it, any one of them. Any one of them. Because all you're worried about is your own idol. If you've got self-esteem issues and you're in Christ, something's definitely wrong. There's an idolatry issue, and you're the idol. Trying to keep or celebrate so-called blessings, that's a huge one that's been coming from the pulpit last couple of weeks. Um, trying to keep or celebrate so-called blessings 
Um, look how blessed I am. Look at, you know, that's a reputational thing. Maybe, you're, maybe your reputation or maybe, you know, maybe your reputation is your idol. Maybe just having, you know, telling the rest of the world how much God loves you. That's your idol. But like I said earlier, maybe some of those things aren't even blessings. They're curses. And anyways, how about hyper-focus on romantic love? That's, that technically could probably be the first one. And if, if I was to prioritize, that usually is the one that takes everybody away from Christ. Everybody. Um, but this is just a list. And the, the net net is that the human flesh thrives on idolatry. As the word is food for the new creature, so idolatry is for the old self, where creature credit is the currency. So the old self is occupied with physical things, earthly stuff, details of life, etc. Jesus knew this, so why shouldn't we? Up here on the board. John 6, 26. These are parts of review. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I mean, this, this, I don't think this would happen in our church, but it could. I know it did. When Remember we used to do the Here It Is events? Remember the new people? They'd show up for the food. They didn't even, I don't even know if they really cared about the message. Maybe they did, but they, I remember one guy walking out with sodas in his pockets. I'm like, for real? For real? You guys got busted in here. You're going to eat all the food and then take sodas with you? And then you ask them about the men. They're like, eh. They didn't even care. Do you know what I'm getting at? They didn't even care. Why did they follow? Why, why did they come to the church? Because they're, they're getting fed. Because they're getting fed. That's why you never entice somebody into a church with like niceties like that. But I was going to say, maybe just maybe on a Sunday morning, one of you is like, I don't really feel like going to church, but Alice is making that sausage quiche thing that I love. So I'm going to go. Just saying. Well, there's always fresh coffee, tea, decaf. You know what I mean? There's that like super splendid bald guy. <laughs> that doesn't happen. That's what scares people away. But the food, just saying, donuts. You guys are kind of spoiled. You know that, right? ridiculous. I come out sometimes and I'm like, oh my word. And I can't eat any of it because I'll be up here, excuse my friend, burping and stuff. So I got to watch you guys gorge. And maybe, just maybe, someone's nice enough to put like a deviled egg aside for me. Give me. <laughs> they're not in a the mood. They fall around because they ate loaves and were filled. The question is, are we merely users or are we lovers? Why are we following Jesus around? I mean, why are you here? John 6.35, up here on the board, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Compare that to but only one thing is necessary. In Luke 10.42, this is the recurring theme in our lessons, in other words. So this is how we ended up on the series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. We've been looking at other key verses as well to discover what the Bible has to say about antagonism to uh, undistracted devotion because we're all we've sort of all gotten 
on some train, let's call it, in our lives. And we all have a certain amount of momentum. So the Spirit's been talking about the idea of momentum, spiritual even, momentum, good or bad spiritual stuff, just momentum in a direction that may not be true north. It could be forked off a little bit. And uh, he wants us to get off that train. And so we've been looking at other passages that speak to uh, the issue of momentum. And empathetically speaking, uh, we must accept that it takes even the most well-intentioned believer some time to get off the train, to be extracted from that life. In some ways, though a loose analogy, this is like open-heart surgery, something that takes a long time, relatively speaking. I mean, of all the operations, like my knee was, I think, 45 minutes. Um, but open-heart surgery, I think, is like 12 hours or sometimes longer. It's a long process, and there's a lot more going on when you open up someone's chest cavity. There's a lot of, you know, like micro vessels and arteries and veins and there's musculature and there's other organs in there. There's a lot going on. You're trying to keep somebody asleep. Anesthesiology is a bit tricky sometimes. All that kind of stuff. Keeping them ventilated. There's a lot going on um, and it's very involved. And so if you're trying to get in there and do some work, it's going to take some time because of the intricacy uh, and even the maturity of the human body. So there are so many arteries and veins and connective tissues that a surgeon must work around to ensure the life of his or her patient. Remember, God's not trying to kill us. I think uh, we laugh, but seriously, if, if he gave us everything up front, if he said, I'm going to sanctify you like right now, we'd all die. Right? We'd be like... <laughs> We'd all croak from the shock of what it would mean to go from the life we know to the life that he wants for us, right? We'd croak in the process. And so, yeah, it's a long thing. Um, he's not trying to kill us, just the cancerous part of us, the dead part. He's surgically separating us from the vestiges of sin, from the old self and the life it built for itself, over the years. It's a long process because some of you like probably just happened 15 minutes ago. You're like, man, yeah, I do have idolatry in my life. How am I going to get rid of that? I mean, my life, some of you might've just been convicted. He's right. I have a 70 inch television and all my furniture is facing it. Is there a problem? Maybe. Depends on how you use that thing. But maybe just, so some of you are kind of like, oh, man, wait a minute. So let's just carry this out. Maybe the Spirit said, yeah, that's kind of a problem and you should stop it. And you're like, wait a minute. I'd have to get rid of my television. I'd have to turn all my furniture away. I'd have to, maybe. Some of you are like, no way. That's my life. I get home from work, I pour myself a little bubbly, and I plop myself on the beanbag right in front of that thing. That would mean I'd have to change my habits. I know. I couldn't have any more football parties. I know. Oh, let's watch reruns of something completely ungodly. Exactly. You wouldn't. Isn't that something, how we reject it, though? I mean, you know the pure thing to do. The pure thing to do, everybody in here would throw their TVs in the trash. Unless you're only going to watch godly stuff, which, let's face it, you're not. <laughs> 
So the, the godliest thing to do, seriously, is everybody takes their television, that sewer pipe, and throw it in the garbage. Who, who, raise your hand if you're going to do it. Nobody's going to do it. See? I have a TV. I didn't even raise my hand. You see what I'm saying? Right? I'm like this. I left hand. Don't let the right hand let the no, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. My flesh is like, I got control of the left arm still. It's like, don't you ever. We laugh, but isn't that, the, it, shh. you look at the Hall of Fame of Faith, and you look at some of the things that some of these people did, they didn't question it. If God said, lose the TV, they'd be like, okay. I mean, they wouldn't know what a TV is, but if they had one, okay. Drop your nuts and follow me. Okay. Abraham, go over there. Where am I going? Shh, go. Okay. Some of you can't even leave your TV behind. That's all the Spirit's saying is that it takes some time. But yet there are, I think there's at least, I, at least one person in here, I, maybe two, that have actually done that TV thing. Gotten rid of it. I don't know. I must have been convicted. But this is what we call sanctification, which means to be separated for God's purposes. Here's the source of encouragement on this up here on the board. 2 Timothy 2.4, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And pleco up here on the board, entangles means to weave, I love it, to entwine this way, you see? Not just, there's not a single yarn. Not just, oh, we'll take the yarn and push it over here. No, it's woven into the fabric of a life that you dragged with you from maybe before you were even saved. So entwine refers to being integrally involved with something else, sort of like being one color yarn in an Afghan blanket. There's interdependencies that make such situations very sticky. Again, sanctification takes time. That's the point. We drag feet. If faith can move mountains, then it certainly can extract any of us from ungodliness. On Thursday, we read Hebrews 11 together, pretty much all of it, and it was a wonderful reminder of the common characteristic of all those listed. It is faith, of course, which is a close cousin of focus and devotion. Faith. I mean, if you don't have faith, you're not going to be devoted to Christ, that's for sure. But that is the discourse the writer takes in this famous chapter, that it's faith. But in the context of our present studies regarding undistracted devotion, we might also take note of the fact that each individual in that book in that list, that Hall of Fame of Faith, surrendered themselves to the Lord. Surrendered. And surrender means surrender. If, you're, if you surrender and your new master says, get rid of the TV, well, if you surrender, you get rid of the TV. If you're not, then you know what you're not? You're not really surrendered. You kind of maybe surrendered. You take baby steps towards surrendering. But that's what we see. We see pure type faith, which is why these individuals are listed. And you notice that it doesn't say that they did everything right. In most cases, it calls out certain things where they had faith. And so the encouragement for us is 
Everybody in here, I know for a fact, everybody, just being here this morning proves it. Everybody in here has areas of their life where they're very faithful. So don't be too hard on yourselves. It could be, I don't know, could be whatever, just showing up. I don't know what you went through to get here this morning. I know that people like Billy and Brenda drive almost an hour. I mean, that to me is always encouraging. Oh. But those things take faith and surrender. In many cases throughout the Bible, we see such individuals, again, exhibiting surrender up here on the board. Undistracted devotion to the Lord is impossible without surrender to His will. Undistracted devotion to the Lord is impossible without surrender to His will. Let's pick out some key verses in this amazing chapter. Go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. We're going to skip around a bit. Hebrews 11.1. 1. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, the intro says it all, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. In other words, this is what's pleasing to God when He sees faith, when He sees you functioning in faith. Verse 6, And without faith, there it is, I just said it, it is impossible to please Him. And faith is a close cousin, obviously, even the root cause for devotion. So we're certainly connected to our series. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It means you're going to get true blessings. Verse 13, verse 13, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I was thinking about that. Without receiving the promises, I think one of the most effective strategies in this world is that the kingdom of darkness delivers on promises, quote-unquote, before God does. Think of that list that I gave you with the six bullets that ended in like romantic love, started with like mortgage and stuff like that. One of the most effective strategies is that the kingdom of darkness, quote-unquote, delivers on promises before God does. Because you know how patient we are, right? We have zero patience. We want it, and we want it now. That's the flesh. Zero patience the flesh has. I want it, I'll kill for it if I have to. People, I mean, let's face it. Unbridled flesh, people kill for money all the time. So the unbridled flesh, I mean, it'll kill for things early. So it doesn't really care where it comes from. It just wants it, and it wants it now. And so the kingdom of darkness preys on that. It says, oh, I see you want a new something, or I see you want to be in this situation, or I see you want a new uh, romantic love, so to speak. I'll give them to you right now. God's making you wait. I'll give them to you right now. What will the man... Uh, do, how will he forfeit his soul if he gains the whole world? You know the past I'm talking about. I can't get it out of my head. What will a man sacrifice, forfeit, 
to gain the whole world? Well, that's, that's the question. Are you going to give up on God and take a, a counterfeit promise? Because the kingdom of darkness specializes in it. What will it profit a man? He forfeits his soul but gains the whole world. But what will you give for your soul in exchange for your soul? Because the kingdom of darkness says, I'll trade with you right now. Every time I think of trade, every time I hear that word merchandising in the context of biblical speak, I always think of Ezekiel 28. I always think of, of Satan when you get called out. Buy your trade, buy your merchandising. Satan is a merchandiser. He says, I'll trade with you all day long. I'll give you a counterfeit for a little piece of your life. I'll give you a counterfeit for a little piece of your soul. I'll give you a counterfeit. God, God doesn't want to give it to you. God's, you know, God whispered in my ear, I'll say, I'm playing. God just told me it's going to be five years before you get your so-called love. But I'll give it to you next week. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to surrender to me. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to lose out. He won't say this, but you're going to lose out on the blessings of God because this is a counterfeit, and counterfeits never deliver. So I think one of the most effective strategies in this world is that the kingdom of darkness delivers on promises before God does. But look at verse 13. They died in faith without receiving the promises. In other words, they didn't lose their faith just because they didn't get some promise in time, so to speak. Some of you have a lot to think about on that front. Verse 39, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Verse 40, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Just a little clarity on that. Uh, verse 40 in the NIV. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words, God said, I'm going to gather you guys together. Um, so that's the maturity, if you would. So again, the common characteristic with believers in Hebrews 11 is faith. So to summarize, faith is what is pleasing to the Lord. And that has everything to do with our devotion. Because without faith, you're not going to be devoted. In a sense, though, this is, all of this is easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, we come to church, we, we hear these messages, and we're like, yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Then why are we not doing it? If it makes that much sense, why are we not doing it? Because sanctification takes time. I mean, who here hasn't echoed the apostles' words at least once in their life? Luke 17, 5. Increase our faith. Lord, increase my... I've prayed, this is probably my most common prayer nowadays. I don't have an answer anymore. I used to think I had way more answers. It's kind of funny. The older I get, the fewer answers I think I have. I don't have any more answers. I'm like, man, no, I can architect it all day long, but I don't have the answer. And so all I say is, give me faith. You want to show me the truth on this situation? That's cool. I know you're not going to, unless you want to. So I'm not going to try to architect a solution to this problem, because that's my problem. I'm an engineer by trade, so all I want to do is architect solutions all day long. And he laughs at me. 
It took 49 years for me to figure out that I'm an idiot. Some of you are like, it only took me like 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, wow. slow learner. Why was that so funny? I don't know how to read that. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> Things you learn, huh? So I just ask for faith. If I'm struggling in an area of my life, I go to prayer and I say, I don't know what to do. So you, you just give me the right faith, whatever it takes to pass this day. Go to Luke 17, 1. Luke 17, verse 1. Luke 17, verse 1. <clears throat> he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Why would they say that? Because they know Jesus Christ was talking in like absolutes. If someone comes back, then forgive him. How am I going to do I can't stand that guy though, right? So forgive him. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Do not return evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. These are all mandates from our Lord in the Word. The apostles said, man, that's just impossible. It's impossible. I, I, I fail that test every single time. I can't stand that guy. I can't stand that woman. She's such a phony. I repent. I don't like you. So what can you do? You can't, what are you going to do, shake? Or you can't do that. Obviously, you're failing the test. So what's your option? Increase our faith. Go to God and pray and say, increase my faith because I obviously lack it. Can't, I can't do this thing. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say this mulberry tree be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, that, oh gosh, doesn't that just put everything in perspective? You think you have faith? How, how far away is your faith from what he just described? Because Jesus doesn't lie. Do you have enough faith that you could take a mulberry tree and you say, move over there into the sea and be playing, and it would work? Be honest with yourself. You're not even close. That's what the whole idea is, right? You guys are so far from pure faith, which is why it takes so, time, so much time. Verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep We'll say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. See, this is where we want to be like, you know, we want to go like this. <sighs> yeah, I got some great faith. I deserve all the rewards and the blessings. That's how I can, that's how I can take these so-called blessings from the kingdom of darkness and justify them. Because <sighs> I'm amazing. Right? God gives grace to the humble. Look at, I have so much faith. And Jesus just said, you don't have hardly any faith. You guys terrible on the grand scheme of things. But this is what we want. He's going to dismantle that argument right here, like quickly. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come in immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? 
and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Your faith is so puny to start with. And then you want to be what, all bravado up in here? And, and did you understand the connective tissue between that attitude, that wrong attitude, and being wrongly bound to so-called blessings in your life that aren't actually blessings? When you think you deserve the counterfeit, it's a lot easier to accept it. When you think you're doing all the right things and your faith is so enormous that God's just blessing you out and blessing you out and blessing you out, in the meantime... You have very little faith. He's given you enough to live on, but you're making all these justifications about why you should have the mansion on the hill or the steak dinners all the time or the 70-inch television that you can so-called handle. And all these so-called blessings and romantic love, yeah, all these so-called blessings, you have to ask yourself, are they actually from him? Do you actually think that you're so fantastic that all these blessings are from God, and that's his way of, 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 of showering you with adoration because he's so pleased with you when you have faith not even of a mustard seed? You see, when you get the right attitude about your faith, all of a sudden, all the blessings become untethered. All the so-called blessings of living in America, now they're untethered. Because you've lost your faith in your faith. Your fake faith. Your pseudo-faith. Your false faith. Your arrogant faith. Because you get brought low. The way Christ just did with these guys. Your faith is horrible. If you just had a little faith, you could do this stuff. And you just agreed. You don't even have enough to move the mulberry tree. And that was the mustard seed side faith. So what's yours? Take a diamond grinder and go, and that little, almost invisible fleck, that's your faith. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I'm just speaking like a scientist. But your faith is so amazing, all those blessings that you're clinging to, that list I gave you, the, the, I almost said the, almost said the S word, the, the stuff you're uh, clinging to, the stuff that's stressing you out, you know what I'm saying? And you know what I'm saying, it's stuff or it's people, all those things that keep you connected to the details of life, the so-called blessings. Why are you not so happy? Why are you not at peace? Why is this like jabbing you? Why is it not pure? That's why we read the Bible. So that we can be confronted with the truth about fundamental things in our lives, like our faith and the so-called blessings, but then also the counterfeits. Idolatry. You don't deserve it, really. I mean, that's what Jesus said in verse 10, right? We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Again, having faith that is pleasing to the Lord is easier said than done, given the 
quote, issues with our sanctification. I think that's fair. We have issues. We're slow learners. We're sluggards. We're lazy. We're slothful. Um, what we see in this Luke 17 encounter with Jesus is twofold. First, the apostles realize that they lack the necessary faith to fulfill all of our Lord's desires for them. So they say, increase our faith. It's a wonderful prayer for all of us. Increase my faith, please. Because I realize I'm nowhere near where you want me to be. So that's the first thing. And we can be encouraged by that. And second, beautifully, Jesus has empathy for their fleshly problem. Jesus has empathy. Remember, Jesus was tempted in every way. He just never sinned. So he gets it. He understands. You're weak, he's strong. You fail, he never did. But he was tempted, and he gets it. And so he often spoke that way. It's why he was able to sit down with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and such. Because he understood. I was thinking about that. It's one of the things I love about God. While he's ever demanding, given his own integrity to the word, he's also ever patient with us. They come as a pair. He's demanding, but he's patient. So this is my will. I'm not going to hide my will. I'm not going to compromise. This is what I want. This is what's pleasing to me. But I get it. That's one of the things I love about God. Thank God he's patient. If we translate this into our own type of language, we might say, you know, let's be realistic. If God can be realistic, so can we. If God's patient with us, we should be patient with ourselves. Doesn't mean, look, don't use that as some ridiculous excuse all of a sudden. I'm just being patient with myself. Don't use that as an excuse. I'm just being patient with myself. But we should be realistic. Until we die physically, we will be haunted by the reality that one of our primary enemies in this life resides in our own bodies. The struggle is real. I'm not going to give you angry cat if you were here Thursday. We mustn't be too hard on ourselves. That's the principle. We mustn't be too hard on ourselves. Should we be solemn? Should we be convicted? Absolutely. Should we remain humble? Absolutely. Should we be should we confess our sin? Absolutely. But we also cannot be too hard on ourselves because a good father doesn't exacerbate his children. So if God doesn't want to exacerbate us, we shouldn't want to exacerbate ourselves. We've got to stay in the game in other words. So concentrate on this. I know I'm giving you a lot. The right perspective on this means freedom. Up here on the board. Freedom. What God wants. We have to learn to put the onus of sanctification on the Lord. It's His work. That is what He wants. He doesn't want you to walk out of church and say, Oh, oh I've got I to sanctify myself. I've got to figure out a way to get better or be better. No. This, the onus of sanctification is on the Lord. 
All of it. And that's what he wants. If God wants something done, he presumes it is his work to do. Why? Because we can't do it. Because we're weak and pathetic and whiny. And, right? I mean, some of you are still whining about the TV thing. I can't believe, can't believe it. There's no kind of games coming on. Patriots are playing on the floor. You can't even walk away from the... If you're like me sometimes, if there's a really good game on, not that I watch football. I'll be in the kitchen getting a drink, and I'll be like this. Around the refrigerator. Why? Because I don't want to miss a play? What the heck is wrong with me? When's the last time I went like this? <laughs> Embarrassingly, I can't tell you when. Mm. Matthew 19, 26. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We have to remember that. That sanctification is God's will. He saved us. He promises to sanctify us. as Philippians 1, 6. It's coming up. And everything's possible with him. With us, it's not possible. But we have to remember that. Up here on the board, it's always arrogant to assume God's place in sanctification. Always arrogant to assume God's place in sanctification. So you might say, I don't, I don't know, this undistracted devotion stuff, I'm not so good at it. I'm pretty much devoted to myself and my life and my kids and my house and my spouse and my cat and my dog and my whatever it is you devote your time to. Yeah. But this is what the Scripture says, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it, will mature you until the day of Christ Jesus. So the onus again is on Him. So it's a nice reprieve for us. Just a little friendly reminder there to ensure none of you get convicted by these messages and then take the wrong turn. Oh, I'm so convicted. I'm going to go sanctify myself. Mm. You just headed down the other. But you were going this way. Here's true north. Now you went that way. You can't compound the situation by getting by overshooting the target. All right, go back. To, let's go back to Paul's empathy. Go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. So we know the Bible speaks of empathy. I mean, who here doesn't want to be devoted undistractedly to the Lord? I mean, we know that that's where all the blessings are. You know that when you have those moments of clarity and you're totally focused on your first love and you're like, this is the most peaceful I've been in a year. And then it's gone. Bloop. Oh, damn you. Right? For like a three-minute span of like perfect, pure clarity. Like, oh, I'm in such peace. And you might even text somebody, I'm in such peace right now. It's so awesome. And then someone comes up on top. Bloop. Oh, I hate you. Gone. Gone. Right? Because there's a gas to it or a flame to gas. Right? So, Next thing you know, you're like, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. 
I can't wait. Get rid of this sinful flesh. Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And what do we learn in Hebrews 11? Without faith, it's impossible to be pleasing to God. And how do you get faith? It's a grace gift. How do you get grace gifts? Humble. Humility. There you go. But that's our ambition. So ultimately, if you want to, if you want to be pleasing to the Lord, you have to be humble. You have to receive messages like this. All of you have to go home today and throw all your TVs in the trash. <laughs> like, that is not happening. Call me humility minus one. That's staying. At least you're honest. I can live with it. As long as you say, I'm convicted, I should do the right thing, but I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to, I can live with that. You should be able to live with that. Don't lie. Don't mock God. You know what I'm saying? Be humble. Accept what you are. You like the TV. Say it! <laughs> I like my TV! Say it! Because it's sick. Got my universal remote, so I'll figure it up. I got 17 different components. God, it's awesome. I can dim the lights from my phone. That's half the battle. Do you see the relax you just got right there? You see how you just went, oh, yeah. That's just being honest before God. That's actually experiencing peace right now, even though you're still a ridiculous sinner. Because at least we are what we are. Isn't that what Paul said? I just am what I am. Anything good in me, by the grace of God, I'm going to live with what, with what I am. God give, God, God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job. I learned to be content whatever circumstances I am. That's Paul. You know what I'm saying? Just. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's you and me. Yeah. All right. I'm running out of time. I'm not going to finish my notes, but that's okay. As we continue our message series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, let's review the last five or ten minutes real quick. Maybe that'll help. First we had, let's be realistic. Until we die physically, we will be haunted by the reality that one of our primary enemies in this life resides in our own bodies. The struggle is real. It is real. So, we mustn't be too hard on ourselves. doesn't mean we have excuses built in. It just means let's not exacerbate ourselves in the process. Devotion to the Lord is a motivational issue, and motivational issues are issues of the heart. The heart is God's field in sanctification. He changes it fundamentally at salvation, 
And then he continues to nurture it, encourage it, even place it in a sense of motivation or place in it a sense of motivation. What I'm trying to say is that motivation is a function of sanctification. Motivation is a function of sanctification. The more you're sanctified, of course, the more you're going to focus and be devoted to your first love. Of course that's the case, but it takes time. Of course you're not motivated right now to get rid of your TV. Why? Why would we laugh it off? Be honest. Because you're not sanctified to that degree yet. Your faith is less than a mustard seed. That's why. And that's what the Spirit's trying to say. You're not motivated to do the, the purest thing in your life in every aspect because you're not sanctified to that degree yet. Because it's just an issue of faith, right? If God said to you right now, seriously, get rid of that stupid TV, it'd be a matter of faith. Because you'd say, if I get rid of it, i got to now occupy all my time with Him. Married ladies? No. With Him. You know, I mean, this is how, I think this is how marriage has survived right now. <laughs> the TV, we, you know, she sits over there, and we, I sit over here. We just watch the TV. <laughs> Can I get you anything? Incoming! For those of you who have little freezers with beer in it, I'm the only one. I'm kidding, I don't have that. I have a ro- like a robot that I designed. <laughs> Seriously, it's a matter of faith. Oh, man, just imagine. If today did not have your TV, some of you like, oh, man, my whole day is gone. I know. You'd have to have faith that God would hook you up, that you would still find a better piece. How about your computers? Some of you are out of control with your computers. Out of con- And by the way, uh, today's phones, especially now since the latest Apple iPhone is like 1500 bucks, they're basically computers. So don't say, oh, I'm not on my computer. Oh, yes, you are. If you, have a, uh, if you have a smartphone, that is a computer. I'm a computer engineer. That is a computer. A very powerful one. Ten years ago, that thing would have been worth a bazillion dollars. Twenty years ago, definitely. Some of you are out of control. Get off your stupid computers, including your phones. Get off of them. What if God said, get rid of that thing? I want you to go back to um, one of those army kind with the antenna. (laughs) Over, 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 because you can't handle it. What if he said that? Seriously, if some of you said, all right, I got to take all computers out of my life, that would take some faith, wouldn't it? Real faith. Yeah, I don't know. Why won't you do it? Because you lack faith. I didn't say that. That's what the Word of God tells us. But just be honest about it. That's how you start. That's what true humility is. Just be honest. I'm still a jackass. I'm still a self-serving pervert. What's the matter, boy? You don't have to be a pervert sexually. You can be perverted in other ways. Jeez, man, know your definitions. See, this is sick. That's because you're on your phone too much. And the only perv you're thinking about is the wrong kind. What's the matter? This guy's getting really sketchy right now. What's the matter? Am I hitting home? Somebody goes, I don't know what he is talking about. Yeah? Let me see your history. 
What? No, no, I hit clear every time, I swear. What's the matter with people? Should I move on? I don't know what to do with myself. I'm getting really uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable. You know why? Because I accept that about you, me, everybody else. We're all sick. The sooner you realize it, the sooner you admit it, that's called humility, the more he can sanctify you. If you sit there and play a game, like, not me, I'm not a perv. Yes, you are. Not me, I'm, okay, then you can sit there while I take the person who actually admits that there are all these things and more, and I'll sanctify them. And they'll be nice and free and living in peace, and you'll be stuck over here with your arms crossed. That's all he's saying. And again, since sanctification is a work of God, we mustn't get too worked up about not being sanctified to the degree our new heart's desire just yet. I mean, who doesn't want to be sanctified? So we have to remember this. We're just reviewing. Oh, where am I? Hey. I don't know. It's gone. I'll just read it then. If God wants something done, he presumes it is his work to do. Matthew 19, 26, and looking at them, he said, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things uh, are possible. So we cannot step or overstep our bounds while seeking undistracted devotion. We have to say, all right, this is your work then. Obviously, I'm wretched. Obviously, I'm this. Uh, I'm going to be humble about it. I would like to be devoted to you undistractedly, but I'm not there yet. And God says, good, that's a perfect place for me to start with you. Because with, with me, all things are possible. So we can't overstep our bounds. And let's not force it and ruin whatever progress he's made to date in us. Again, up here on the board, it's always arrogant to assume God's place in sanctification. Let him complete the work he's promised in you. That is Philippians 1.6 up here on the board. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for the privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for always being frank and honest and also patient with us as we contest with you, with your will. Father, let us be honest with you minimally. Let us confess to you our own sins, Father, so that we might be set free ultimately, which brings glory to you. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.